So in a few minutes, Claudine will sit in this water. She'll probably be a little bit chilly if she does that. And I will lower her down into the water so she's completely immersed in it. I will lift her up and she'll be dripping water from her face, from her hair. And we call that baptism. Now imagine that you had never seen a baptism. You had never read the Bible. You're from a completely different culture. You don't know any Christians, and you show up today, okay? And you see this happen. What's going through your mind? It would look pretty weird, wouldn't it? I mean, everyone is here. We're not dressed formally, but we're in clothes. No one else is wet. And so what's going on? It probably asked the question, why is she doing this? Is she washing in front of everyone, but there's no soap, there's no shampoo? And she didn't really come out any cleaner than she was when she went in. Now, imagine that happened, and the service concludes, and this stranger asks you afterwards, what was that about? Why did it happen? What would you say? How would you explain it to someone who's never read the Bible, never had any experience of baptism? You might answer, well, this is a Christian tradition. It's an ancient practice. Christians have done this for thousands of years. That would be a true statement, but that is not why we do it. We don't do anything simply because it is a tradition. Or you might say, we baptize because Jesus commanded it. One of the last things he said before he ascended into heaven was, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so he commanded it, so we do it. Well, what do you think of that answer? It's true. It's sufficient. If Jesus commanded it, we should do it, even if we don't understand it. But the Bible does give us more reason to be baptized than simply Jesus' commandment. So that, too, is an insufficient, a true but insufficient answer to the question. What is the explanation that Scripture gives for baptism? Well, this morning, I'm not going to try to flesh that out fully, because basically the entire gospel is summed up in baptism. But what I want to do is to note one incorrect view of baptism, note one characteristic of biblical baptism, and then highlight one important meaning of baptism. So note an incorrect view, note one characteristic of biblical baptisms, and then one important meaning of baptism. 
So this is not a complete overview of what baptism signifies, but highlighting certain central truths. On the table in the foyer, I've printed out, for those who want it, all the verses in Scripture that use the Greek words translated baptism, baptize, etc. Okay? So I encourage you to read over all of those verses. And if you want the electronic version, you can ask me. I'll send a link to you. So that's helpful to go look at those passages and say, okay, this is what Scripture says when it refers directly to the word baptism. There are other Scriptures that are relevant that don't use the word baptism, but these at least give us a comprehensive view of the use of that word in Scripture. But this morning, incorrect view, one characteristic, one important meaning. So first of all, the incorrect view. The incorrect view is that baptism saves us. Baptism is the instrument of salvation that brings us to a saved state. It is thus necessary for salvation. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, why would I even be confused about that? That should be obvious that the act of baptism is not salvific. But turn to 1 Peter 3, verse 21. 1 Peter 3, verse 21. In this passage, Peter has mentioned the flood. And he says, at the time of the flood, there were eight people, Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Eight people who were saved out of the flood. And then he continues, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Okay? That's what 1 Peter 3.21 says. Baptism saves you. Baptism, which corresponds to the rescue of Noah and his family from the flood, now saves you. So someone who believes that baptism is salvific could very well say, it's right there in black and white, 1 Peter 3.21. Do you believe the Bible or not? Peter, the apostle, says, baptism saves you. Okay? It's obvious. Well, how do we respond to that? What is Peter saying in 1 Peter 3, 21? This is an example, an important example, of how we deal with difficult issues in Scripture. Okay, that's one reason that I want to spend time on this this morning, because there are many places in Scripture where upon first reading, a verse seems to contradict things that are said elsewhere in the Bible. What do we do in that case? Well, I preached a whole series of sermons several years ago called Paradoxes in Scripture, which was dealing with this, arguing that when we take these and query them and ask deep questions about them, God then opens up for us more and more the truths of his word. And so we don't want to throw up our hands and say, ah, the Bible contradicts itself. Nor to take one verse and say, well, I'm going to believe this one and not this other one. But we want to compare scripture with scripture 
and say, what is the Bible as a whole saying about this? So the Bible in its entirety is God's revelation to us. We must love God's word so much that we read all of it and understand each part in light of its entirety. Okay? So this is a key principle for us in putting ourselves under the authority of Scripture. We use Scripture to interpret Scripture. In particular, we use the clearer parts of Scripture to help us understand the less clear parts of Scripture. And 1 Peter 3.21 is unclear. Why do I say that? Let me read on in that verse. Baptism, which corresponds to this, to the salvation of Noah and his family through the flood, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, what does he just say? Even right here in this very verse where he says baptism now saves you, he says it's not the act of immersing in the water that saves you. What saves you is the appeal to God through a good conscience, the appeal to God through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That is what saves us. And so there's ambiguity even in the verse itself. Is it baptism that saves us or the appeal that saves us somehow both? What is Peter saying? And thus, this verse is a good candidate for what I just said. This is an unclear verse. Let's go elsewhere in Scripture to clearer sections to try to understand what Peter is saying here. So let's do that. Let's compare this to other Scriptures. First, the passage we read from Romans 10. Let's just look at verses 9 to 11 of Romans 10. The apostle writes this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says... Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, where's the word baptism in that passage? It's not there. It's not there. Paul doesn't mention baptism, but he does mention what we might call the appeal to God that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3.21. The appeal to God through faith in the crucified and risen Christ. That, he says, is what saves us. God declares us righteous by grace through faith in Jesus as Savior, as Lord, as treasure. Okay? Everyone who believes this is not put to shame. Everyone who believes this is saved. That's the first passage. Second passage. Think of the case of the repentant thief who was crucified alongside of Jesus. Luke 23, verse 42. The thief, after earlier 
mocking Jesus, hanging on the cross a few hours, seeing Jesus, how he was responding to this, says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He has faith. He is saved. He is never baptized. And yet he is saved. If baptism was the necessary instrument of salvation, the thief would not be saved. But he had faith. He had that appeal to God on the basis of Jesus' death. And so he is saved. Third passage, Acts chapter 10. Peter is in the house of a non-Jew named Cornelius. Cornelius' family and friends are gathered around to hear. God has miraculously brought Peter here. And Peter preaches the gospel. And then in verse 44, I, I, I don't think Peter finished his sermon. I think while he was preaching, the Holy Spirit just decided, okay, this is the time. And the Holy Spirit fell, according to verse 44, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The Jewish believers who accompanied Peter to the house of Cornelius were amazed. Why? Verse 45, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, even on these non-Jews. You see, God had saved them. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit on them is their salvation. They are believers now. And so Peter says, verse 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? They are saved. It's already happened. And now they conduct the baptism. He says it's perfectly appropriate to baptize these people now because there's obvious evidence that they are saved. God has saved them. Okay, step back a bit. Note what we've done so far. That initial reading of 1 Peter 3.21 seemed to indicate that baptism saves us. We looked more closely at the verse, and we saw, hmm, he also talks about the appeal to God. So what is it that's saving us here? The appeal or the baptism? When we compare 1 Peter 3, verse 21, to other clearer passages of Scripture, then we see from Romans 10 that Paul teaches salvation is not dependent on baptism, It's dependent on, instead, confessing with your mouth, believing in your heart. From Luke 23, we have the example of a person who is saved, who is never baptized. And then Acts 10, we have people who are clearly saved prior to being baptized. Okay? So those three passages, and we could cite many more, clearly show that baptism is not the saving act. It's something else. Thus, Peter cannot possibly mean, if Scripture is, if all of Scripture is the Word of God, then Peter cannot be meaning in 1 Peter 3.21 
that the act of baptizing in water is what saves anyone. So that's our first heading, the incorrect view of baptism. But now, what does Peter mean by what he says? What's the precious truth that Peter and these other passages are teaching? So under this second heading, we want to elaborate on what we've already noted. One characteristic of biblical baptism is that saving faith precedes water baptism. Saving faith precedes water baptism. Well, we already saw that in Acts chapter 10, but let's note some other passages. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has come down on the apostles, and now the huge crowd gathers because they hear this sound like rushing wind, and they hear people speaking, and everyone can hear them speaking in their own language, even though they know these men who are speaking don't know their language. And so Peter preaches the gospel, and then verse 37, people cut to the heart, the the people were cut to the heart when they understand that they crucified the Messiah, and they ask, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter says, verse 38, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So verse 41, Those who received his word were baptized. Okay? They received the word, that is, they believed what Peter was preaching. They confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, believed in their heart that God raised them from the dead, in the words of Romans 10. And then they were baptized. They believed, and then they were baptized. Second example, Acts chapter 8. Philip is preaching the gospel In Samaria, verse 12, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Okay? You see the order? They believed, and then Philip baptizes them. Philip preaches the gospel, they believe, and then they are baptized baptized. Third example, last example, the passage we read from Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas have been in Macedonia and Philippi. A number of things happen. They're arrested, they're beaten, and they're put, their feet are put in stocks, and it's midnight, and they're singing hymns as their wounds heal and as they are uncomfortable, but they're praising God in this jail. And there's an earthquake at midnight. The doors of the prison open. The chains fall off. All of the prisoners are able to walk out. (laughs) The jailer knows, hey, if all the prisoners are gone... 
That's my responsibility. They're going to execute me. I might as well kill myself. But Peter, but Paul says, stop, don't harm yourself. We're all still here. And then verse 29, trembling with fear, the jailer fell down before Paul and Silas and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he, Peter, took them the same hour of the night. And I'm sorry, Paul took them the same hour of the night. I'm sorry. Substituting for he and getting the wrong antecedent. The jailer took Paul and Silas the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Okay, so the jailer has asked, what must I do? What does Paul say? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus. He doesn't say be baptized. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus. And so Paul explains the gospel more clearly to him, speaks the word, and he and his household believe. And that very night, everyone who had believed in his household was baptized. So again, what's the order? They believe, and then they are baptized. Okay. But understand, I'm talking more about more than simply order here. The question is, what are the requirements to be baptized biblically? What are the requirements? In these passages, there were no requirements except faith in the Lord Jesus. They did not have to do anything to qualify for baptism. Baptism was for all who expressed faith in Jesus as Savior, as Lord, as treasure. They didn't go through a probationary period in order to show by their actions and attitudes that their faith is genuine. They express faith, and then they were, be, then they were baptized. So, Here's the point. This is what I'm trying to get at. Baptism is an external picture of the salvation that God has already worked in a person's heart. Salvation by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Baptism is an external picture of the salvation that God has already worked in a person's heart Salvation by God's grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. If we were to add requirements to that expression of faith, we would obscure the biblical picture of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. That what is pictured in baptism. Okay? Now, the reason that some churches require a probationary period 
is to somehow have more confidence that that expression of faith is genuine. They say, we don't want to baptize someone who's not really saved, and if someone just professes faith in Christ, they might not be saved. Okay? But we have examples in Scripture of a baptism taking place when the person then shows that he's not saved. And there's no point made that somehow it was wrong to baptize this person. Back with Philip in Acts chapter 8, when he's in Samaria, he baptizes a man named Simon who expresses faith, but shows by his later actions after baptism that he is not truly saved. So the conclusion that we should draw from that story and others and this overall picture of baptism and saving faith is that the only requirement for baptism is a credible confession of faith in Jesus Christ, a believable confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if someone says, I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I'm going to go rob the 7-Eleven now, right? Then that profession of faith is not credible, okay? And so it's not that there's no other aspects of the person's life that are relevant, but the point is, it's not something in the book of Acts that needed to be proved, okay? If there's evidence that, yes, this person has repented of sin, has acknowledged his or her sin, and trusts that Jesus has paid the penalty for all those sins, and I'm not saved by anything I've done, any religious act, any good deed I've done, then, praise God, let's baptize this person. I've baptized people who, in retrospect, were probably not saved when I baptized them. But they made a credible confession of faith. I pray that in the end, God will save them. Very much so. But we can't set up, we should not set up guardrails that then obscure the picture of salvation by grace through faith that baptism is. Okay. Footnote. I've just said, once a person makes a credible confession of faith, it is right to baptize them. The footnote. All the biblical examples we have of baptism concern adults. The Bible never discusses baptism of children. And for reasons I'd be happy to elaborate on later if you want to ask me, To me, it has seemed wise to wait until a child is old enough for the church and the elders of the church to distinguish between an obedient child who is gladly following his or her parents and a credible confession of faith. And if I'm talking to an eight-year-old, I think it's really, really difficult, almost impossible, to distinguish between those two. But that's a matter for each church to decide, seeking wisdom from God. It's not clear in 
scripture. But that's been my preference, my practice. But for adults, it is absolutely clear. Believe, saved, baptized. All three of those are wrapped up together. Indeed, that's the meaning, I would argue, for 1 Peter 3.21. Salvation is so closely tied to baptism, the reality of salvation to the picture of salvation in baptism, baptism pictures that appeal to God through Jesus Christ from a clear conscience. And there's such a quick movement from believing to salvation that unless it is impossible for a person to be baptized, such as the thief on the cross, there should be a quick movement from salvation to baptism. And they go together. And so Peter can say, baptism now saves us because the reality of faith is so wrapped up in the act of baptism. Okay. Well, why is baptism so important then? Why is it so closely related to faith and salvation? That's then our final point. One important meaning of baptism. Well, baptism pictures our salvation in Jesus in numerous ways, but I'm focusing just on one in this last section. That is our identification with Jesus, that we are identified with Christ. Think of it this way. In much of the Western U.S., the government owns huge swaths of land, which are grazing land. These are public grazing lands. And those who own cattle are free to have their cattle out on these grazing lands. But since the land did not belong simply to one rancher or another rancher, it's easy for the herds to get interspersed, right? So how do you know which cows belong to which rancher? Well, I think many of you know what happens, right? You take a brand, iron, put it in the fire. It's shaped with the identification for one ranch, and another ranch has another identification, and you burn that into the skin of the cattle so you can identify which cattle belong to which rancher. Think of baptism that way. In baptism, you are branded as belonging to Jesus. You belong to no one else. You are marked. This one belongs to Jesus. How do the biblical accounts make this point? Again, three passages just briefly to support. First is the figurative use of the word baptize. The word baptize literally means immersed, right? But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is speaking of the nation of Israel. And he says, 
speaking of the incident at the Red Sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Well, none of them were immersed in water, right? In fact, the whole account of the Red Sea experience is that they didn't get wet, right? They walked through the Red Sea and did not get wet. And when Pharaoh and his army went into the Red Sea, all that army was drowned. They got wet. But when Paul is saying they were baptized into Moses in the sea, his point is they were identified with Moses. They were identified with Moses as their leader. So in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul feels free to use the word baptism to mean primarily identification with, because identification with is a key part of the meaning of Christian baptism. Second passage, the passage we read, that James read for us from Romans chapter 6. Let me read those verses again, verses 3 to 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And those are the words that I use when baptizing, right? After asking, I'll ask Claudine, do you believe in Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, as your treasure, and after her response, I'll say, on the basis of that profession of faith, I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And then I will lower her into the water and say, buried with Christ, and then raise her and say, and raised to walk in newness of life to the glory of God the Father. So we're identified with Jesus in his death, we're buried with him. As Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And that's true not only of Paul, it's true of every believer. We're identified with Christ in his death. We are dying to what once bound us. We are dying to what once tempted us. United with Christ in his death. Death. So in Christ, we die to sin. We die to the law. We die to the world. We die to ourselves. But then the second way we are identified with Christ, united with Christ in his resurrection. We die to sin, to the slavery that once, that once bound us, and we, we are then raised as Christ in this world. We are new creations, living by his power, abiding in him, having his words abide in us. As Colossians 3.3 says, you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So we were united with Christ in his death, united with him 
in his resurrection, branded as his. Third, finally, Galatians 3.26. In Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. If you want to ask me why he says sons and not children, talk to me about that later. It's important. We are all, male and female, sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So put on Christ. That's the image. That's the metaphor. Put on Christ. We are wearing Christ. We are stamped with his brand. Many college graduates like to wear clothes emblazoned with the name of their school, proclaiming, I'm a Tar Heel, right? Or, and they can be annoying sometimes, even though my son is one of them. I'm a 49er. I'm part of the Wolfpack. I'm whatever. As Christians, when we're baptized, we are wearing the hoodie of Jesus, okay? We're proclaiming we are his. You know, the high priest would wear a gold emblem on his forehead that says, holy to the Lord. That's what we are. We belong to Jesus, set apart for him, holy to him. We are all sons of God. We have that family likeness to him. We are insiders. And the word that Jacob has been using as we work our way through Mark, we are branded as his. And this identification with Jesus is so powerful that it overwhelms all other aspects of our identity. It doesn't make those other aspects of identity disappear. I look around this room, I see male and female, right? I see different races. They don't disappear, but they are overwhelmed by their identification with Christ. And those very distinctives in us then serve to glorify Jesus all the more. So when I'm branded as belonging to Jesus, when I am baptized, I belong to no one else. Not to my parents, not to my ethnic group, not to my country, not to my economic class, not to my sex. What distinguishes me, what sets me apart, what identifies me more than any of those is Jesus. Identification with Jesus. He is my Lord, my Savior, my treasure. I am one with him, and thus I am one with all those others who are in him, regardless of those other earthly distinctions. That identification with him makes my unity with all other believers, makes that the overwhelming reality in my life. More than anything else, 
that might unite us with another person. I am one with him, for in his death I died. In his resurrection, I live. Well, that's what Claudine is about to say as she steps into the waters of baptism. Do you say the same? Do you recognize that the holy and righteous God created you in order that you might belong to him? In order that you might be identified with him and thus glorify him? Do you acknowledge your failure to live up to what your creator has created you to be? Do you repent, trusting in Jesus' death on the cross as your only hope is the full payment for your rejection, for your rebellion? Do you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Do you believe and acknowledge that he is worth more than all this world has to offer? If that's true, then you are one with Christ. Then you are branded as his. And Claudine comes now saying, I'm a sinner, but I trust in Jesus. And as she professes faith through baptism, I charge each of you also, profess faith in Jesus as Lord, as Savior, as treasure. And you too will be branded as his for all eternity. Let's pray together.